日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へ Hey, welcome back to the Samurai Archives podcast. Today we're going to be interviewing Trevor Absalon. He's a Japanese armor expert and collector and owner of the Japanese armor website, Toraba.com. The interview will be conducted by Nate. And Nate asks Trevor about how he got into the armor business and what we should know about Japanese armor and advice for anyone who might be interested in actually starting to collect Japanese armor. So without further ado, here is the interview. Uh, welcome back to the Samurai Archives uh, podcast. This is uh, Nate.、Uh, I'll be the only member of your regular crew today, as、uh, Chris, Travis, and、uh, the rest of the gang are, are not available, but、uh, hopefully you can, you can put up with just me. Our special guest today is、uh, Trevor Absalon from uh, Taraba uh, Japanese Samurai Armors. Hey,、Hello. how are you? <laughs>、um, And so today we're going to talk about the subject of,、uh, of samurai armor、uh, and kind of what all is in, involved with it, what it entails, a little bit of the history of it,、uh, and uh, also where you can learn more about it.、Uh, I think many people who are interested in, in Japan, particularly the pre modern period, you know, have this image of, of what it is, and there are a lot of I guess mistaken images out there. So, kind of similar to how we try to approach everything, we'll kind of try to sort that out and, and see what we can do with,、uh, with our, our guest、uh, Trevor here today. So, so, with that, Trevor, could you tell us a little bit about、uh, what you do and, and your、uh, website and where else we can find、uh, your information? Okay, well, to begin with, I'm talking about myself.、Um, I'm a Canadian citizen at present time. I.、Um, I had a previous life,、uh, did some service in the Canadian military, was an officer.、Mm-hmm. Okay. Getting out of the military, I、um, decided I'd like to travel a bit and、uh, I went abroad and I went to Japan on a bit of a whim. That turned out to be、uh, a three month excursion, turned into nearly two decades of my life. Very nice. It was a very, yeah, it was a very good experience and it worked out well for me.、I'm, I met my wife there, all my children were born in Japan. And,、um, I, I wouldn't change it if I could. It's,、um, it's worked out for the best overall. My connection to samurai armor, that really much began with the fact that、um, I'd always been interested in antiques. We had some old、uh, First World War German pickle hobs, spike helmets. Okay.、Uh, my grandfather's house, war relics that、um, my great grandfather brought back. And as a kid, those fascinated me. And、uh, so that sort of started the、uh, collector's bug in me at an early age. Sure, sure. And I、uh, began collecting sort of military,、uh, you know, a lot of helmets and different headdresses from around the world at a young age. And I carried on into my, you know, 20s. And、uh, ultimately, when I got over to、uh, Japan, that was a pretty deep rooted、um, part of my life, collecting antiques, and particularly,、um, again, the military headdresses and items like that. Right. And suddenly those items just weren't available to me. What I normally collected, which was primarily Victorian period cavalry helmets and stuff like that. Okay. And so the obvious next best thing, at least as far as Japan was concerned, was samurai armor. 
and I stumbled across a, a very rough, very shoddy looking piece of uh, armor in a market one day and I thought it was absolutely amazing and that was it I, it had me and I, I bought that piece uh-huh. and the um, hobby it grew from there from a hobby of collecting and which ultimately uh, metamorphosed into a business for me and oh. it's uh, been a very enjoyable business okay so so it started sounds like it started as a, as a you know kind of a personal passion that you were then able to you know, after you'd collected some pieces, uh, you know, of the, of the samurai armor, you, you then expanded that into, you know, working with armor itself. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, as you said, you know, as a collector originally, you know, you'd find after a while, I would, uh, you know, I was a pretty aggressive collector. I'd go out and find pieces, and I'd end up finding something very similar to another piece I had, but perhaps better. And I'd say. Um, well, you know, I, I don't really have the finances or the room for two, and this one's better, so one sort of would get pushed aside, and uh, I'd sell it off to, you know, make finance my next purchase. And over time, I started to realize I was making money as I was building my own collection, and um, and I was enjoying it. So even though I had a, I was working for the Japanese government at that time, I had a good-paying job and had a really fun hobby on the side, and it slowly, again, evolved into a business. And I've never actually um, manufactured armor or done anything like that. As I collected, though, I became, and I'm sure this is something that's going to come up as we have this discussion this evening, is that um, there really wasn't a lot of good literature out there to explain right. the pieces. Right. And and that really drove me further to dig more and find out more. And, um, and I discovered, actually, and as I guess most people will recognize, that the best way to learn about any subject matter is hands-on experience of course yes yeah. so i was you know with the little bit of limited literature i had i could compare it with the actual physical pieces and uh it was a quite a sharp learning curve and how did you go about uh since you said that, that there wasn't a whole lot of literature out there to describe different pieces and to, and to to teach you about it you kind of had to do things yourself so how did you go about uh gathering information both about the pieces, the specific pieces that you were acquiring and, and working with, and also uh, just armor in general. Um, I think, like most people, I, I, I um, you know, collected some of the, the 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 basic books out there, the fundamentals. Uh, you know, and I'd have to mention a few, such as you know those produced by Anthony Bryant in the Osprey series, and um, they helped form the foundation. And I have to, Anthony's a great guy. I've, communicated with him over the years he's helped me on my own books so um was interesting to see that come full circle but uh i found the problem was that most of the books never went beyond the basics and they were very vague right and so how, how i overcame that by well one i i can speak japanese having lived there and so i initially i tended to rely on a lot of the dealers and people that i was meeting and uh, you know asking them questions but i sure pretty quickly found that a lot of them though they spoke pretty well and they they looked like they knew what they were talking about they didn't okay. and um so that that sort of forced well forced me to look for more reliable sources of information and i i joined a japanese armor society and you met people there were a lot of highly knowledgeable people in some of those groups mm-hmm. and um through those i ultimately became a student of um dr sasama uh, whether that name rings a bell or not, I'm not sure. But in the um, 
through the 1970s, 80s, 90s, up until uh, the early part of this millennium, he was probably the premier authority on Japanese armor in Japan and a prolific writer of books on the subject. Unfortunately, all of his literature is in Japanese. Right. Um, so that helped me a lot. The fact that one, I could communicate with an individual like this. Um, I could sit down and have direct conversations and I was able to, you know, access these books in Japanese, which there is a lot of good literature in Japanese, but very little of it's ever been translated in English because really it's just not, uh, I think, financially feasible to do so. Mm -hmm. And uh, the market just wouldn't bear that. So for a lot of collectors outside of Japan, you're really isolated from a, a real wealth of information that just doesn't exist in the West. And that's something I've tried to, or I'm hoping to do, um, bring across to a, a wider, not necessarily market, but a bigger expanse of the collectors who are interested in Japanese armor and this subject matter. Um, because again, for, for the most part, people just don't have access to that information and they need it. Certainly, certainly. So I, I will just comment on one thing you said. I, I, uh, certainly, uh, Anthony Bryant is a, uh, a friend of the Samurai Archives. As, uh, we've been in contact with him and, and worked with him for many years. So uh, we'll make sure we get the links to his books up uh, as well as part of the, uh, the page for this podcast, uh, in addition to all, all of your information. It, you, you bring up an interesting point, I think, because really – there's a lot of subjects that we could say the same thing about, uh, as you say about armor, where there's snippets or there's there's bits of information on on it in English that have been translated, but but really you don't get the whole picture. And to get that full complete picture of things or the details that uh, that you really need to, to have a depth of knowledge, you have to go to the uh, to the Japanese sources and, and to I mean. It's a, it's it's pretty impressive that you had such a uh, a resource like uh, Dr. Sasama at your um, access to that, and, and so that that speaks volumes as to where you know your information uh, came from and how you were able to piece all all of these things together. So, what uh, uh, you mentioned some of the problems that uh, uh, or some of the, I guess misinformation that you see either collectors or or just people who with an interest in samurai armor. Primarily in in the West, some of the you know some of this misinformation that's that's floating around. What are some of the more common, uh, I guess, uh, mis misinformation or or you know misconceptions that you see floating around that uh, would be useful to kind of debunk? Well, Hollywood aside, <laughs> uh, I think a lot of the armor that we view today. And that would be, you know, armor in museums and collections. A lot of it's late able period. Sure. And um, as such, it's it's um, not necessarily an accurate reflection of what Japanese armor was right. and the different stages that it went through as it metamorphosed over the centuries and millenniums. Um, the Edo period armor, the late Edo period armor, was particularly gaudy, except for the very last few years and uh, sort of Bakumatsu era. But... Um, a lot of that armor is the sort of pieces that um, Westerners, of course, or Europeans, first encountered. That was their first experience for the most part. And that's the impression that's stuck in the West. Right. And 
those were also the pieces that primarily came to the West first when Japan opened up in the Meiji period. And um, we have to remember that when the Meiji period began in the, we'll say the early 1870s, armor overnight had literally become obsolete after over a millennium of use in Japan. Right. And a lot of those pieces, I mean, they were worth nothing. And, um, you know, but there's always astute businessmen everywhere. And entrepreneurs recognize that as this influx of, uh, you know, primarily European um, tourists poured into Japan after it suddenly opened up after centuries of being closed, these were very wealthy people to be able to travel at that period of time in history. Uh-huh. And they were, you know, they had the homes and the wealth and the ability to acquire these sort of novelty items. And Japanese armor was definitely one of those pieces. And so a lot of the armor that left Japan and came back to the West was, again, this sort of late Edo period stuff. It was very gaudy, and that set sort of a standard in Europeans' eyes. And another thing happened, which I don't think is touched on a lot, is that the Japanese businessmen, we'll say the uh, the antique dealers of their time, were right. very astute, as they are today. And they realized that the Europeans or the American or, you know, North American tourists who were buying these items favored certain styles. Okay. Things with dragons on it, things with sort of certain symbolism that they just associated with the East. Certainly, and so yeah. They promptly started taking things apart and revamping them, banging dragons into them and embossing all these features on them that uh, weren't really there previously. Yeah, it, it's so, that, that's interesting. That's very similar to, to what you see, and I'm sure if, if Travis were here, he, he would make this comment about uh, um, woodblock printmaking. And as we as you get into like the late 1800s and early 1900s, uh, certain producers of woodblock prints realized that uh, they weren't selling in the uh, in uh, in Japan anymore, but they could sell them outside of Japan and make lots of money. But they had to make them look quote unquote Japanese uh, yes. to to have the attraction to to, to Western and uh, you know North American and European buyers. So they did pretty much the same thing of picking very you know, traditionally Japanese uh, scenes and so forth that uh, would would sell, uh, but also using certain uh, Western art art uh, techniques and you know, like Western perspective and so so forth like that to make it more palatable to a sure. Western audience. So it's really it's it's not Japanese, it's not Western. It's kind of this weird, weird mishmash of the same thing in order to move more prints and sell them. So, yeah, to make it yeah. a marketable commodity. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. Interesting. And what happens there is you think that as these pieces go to the West and fill in the museums, they also set the standard for what a lot of the initial literature on Japanese armor was based upon. Right. And if you look at a lot of the sort of earlier books on Japanese armor that appear in the West, the suits that they are presenting are not really reflective of most of what Japanese armor was over the majority of its existence sure it's sure it's just a short window of uh time that it sort of represents uh, and um and then again so a lot of these books of course the early books set the standard for the next books and as we know with a lot of books people refer to as the references back to existing sources and a lot of those sources as much as they try to be accurate and just you know present the information in a 
in a logical and correct manner. A lot of it was very flawed information. Yes, yes. And, I, I, yeah, and, our, 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 our listeners who have listened to my 17-part series on Nagashino are very familiar with this concept, I'm sure. Yeah. So Yeah, of course, that information just keeps being reborn again and again with each new sort of book on the subject that comes out because those books now you can't really go back and dispute them because they form such a foundation of of what we assume that this subject matter is based on right right and that's hard to break it's hard to break these sort of um you know uh, urban myths as such uh for example the uh top of a japanese helmet the uh if you're familiar with them, there's a ring fitted to the top with an opening that goes to the helmet bowl. Right. And that, there's multiple names for it. Most common one is the Tehen no Ana or Tehen no Kanamono. Right. And there's um, a lot of books in the West said, oh, these were meant for um, allowing uh, water to escape through the hole when a samurai tried to submerge himself to hide. And you go, I mean, that's just idiotic. I mean, <laughs> that makes no sense whatsoever. Or... They say it was to allow for the uh, war god Hachiman to enter the warrior and all these things. But a lot of this was, was mythology that the Japanese made up themselves. Right. And, and it carried on over to the West. But the Europeans took it like this was the literal use for this piece or the meat, their origin of its existence, why it was fabricated into the item. And it wasn't. It was just a nice story. You okay. know, the real use is make, basically that... It's just an easier way to finish a, uh, a helmet bowl when you're trying to join a bunch of plates together at a focal point. Right. You know, how do you stack them all together at one space? It's easier just to cut them out, and it allows the helmet bowl to breathe. You know? Right. So, but which makes a for a quote unquote sexier story, right? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Let's not talk about the practical aspect of it. Let's let's make up something that sounds better. Certainly. Yeah. Okay, so. So you you mentioned you know kind of how these misconceptions and 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 all are, are uh, come out of you know what uh, what was transmitted at the early stages of the Meiji period as, as Europeans and and, and uh, other Westerners were were going and acquiring these pieces and, and writing information with kind of only half the you know, or if if that of of uh, the story of of what it is, if, could you could you give us a brief kind of rundown of, you know, the, the basics of Japanese armor, but kind of the, the historical development and what people should have as a basic idea of, of the story of Japanese armor. Wow, that's, that's going to be tough. <laughs> I mean, because you're talking, you know, well over a millennium worth sure. of evolution. Um, as with all countries, most cultures have developed forms of protective body armor um the japanese version of body armor was of course um a some of the designs were initially inherited from the, the continental mainland and but ultimately they evolved into a very unique and um highly original form of armor which we can now recognize as you know we would say samurai armor right um for most of i think the first four or five hundred years of um, what we would now today, the average collector or person interested in the subject matter would recognize as being Japanese armor, let's say from around the 10th or 11th century onward, they could look at it and go, oh, that's a samurai armor. Right. For, for those initial four to 500 years, 
armor was primarily, um, it was a very exclusive item. Very few men would have actually had access to something like that or could have afforded it. And it was meant, it was designed to protect a mounted archer, as you know. Right. And um, the warrior back then, their main weapon was the bow. The armor was primarily designed to allow them to ride while using a bow in combat. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, the armor was designed to protect against arrows as your primary um, sort of uh, the weaponry that you would be confronting. So, as you go through time, though, and we go through the different time periods and you get um, the Muromachi period and as things begin to break down within the social structure of Japan right. and um, the various warlords and um, start to take precedence and try to f- create their own little domains, carve out a domain for themselves the need for armor or the style of armor changes. And this is because the campaigns become more prolonged. They have to wear them for longer periods of time. Whereas in the initial engagements, they were very short and brief. And so the armor has to become more simplistic, more practical. And eventually it becomes, by the time we get to the late uh, 1600s, 1700s, Armor, well, Seki Gahara, for example, armor was very refined by this point. It was very practical. A lot of the gaudiness had gone out of it. It was a very form-fitting, functional item. And um, an average set of armor, and again, most people, unless they've studied the subject matter, they wouldn't really envision the sort of armor of the Seki Gahara time period. They would tend to envision the armors of the earlier or the late later periods because right, those are the right ones. either either the oyoroi with the giant uh you know osume, yes um the the sleeve covering uh yes. of the the genpei era where we we see exactly like, the, the minamoto and the taira fighting each other versus um the like edo period armors with like the huge uh, you know, oh, somebody seen sh- yeah, Shogun yeah. with the, the huge bullhorn. Exactly, because those uh, are the flamboyant styles that they look good in books. Those are the ones we like to see. They're aesthetically pleasing. Right. Uh, what encompasses a full armor, for the most part, um, and this is something I push a lot in my books that collectors really need to understand, is that armor, a lot of the armor that's out there now that we see, and even in museums, um not necessarily the better museums, but a lot of the museums around the world, are composites. They've been made up from amalgamation of various pieces. And the average person doesn't know the difference. They assume because you have all the conventional pieces from a helmet bowl down to the footwear, you have one set of armor. That's not true. A real gusoku or full set of armor Mm -hmm. would have had certain design features or characteristics that would have been consistent throughout the entire fabrication of the suit from top to bottom. Okay. And very few collectors are able to identify this these features. And so they buy what they assume is a gusoku, only to find out later it's a composite, a composite armor grouping. Right. Um, but you should basically have a helmet bowl um, from the mid-1500s on. Most armors included uh, an item of um, facial armor called a mengu or a menpo, depending what you want to how you want to refer to it. You would have the body armor, the main torso armor, which is called a doe. Um, shoulder guards sort of went out of favor at one point, but were generally consistent through most of Japanese history. Um, they're called sode. Uh-huh. You'd have the armored sleeves, the kote, a thigh guard, 
sort of apron-like panel. Um, that's called the Haidate. There would also be shin guards called Suneate. And those pieces generally make up what would be considered to be one full Gusoku. You could have other accessories like foot coverings and uh, different features, but those key pieces are what um, basically makes up a, a conventional set of samurai armor. Okay. So what for... I mean, I realize it probably would have changed over time, but can you uh, kind of give us an understanding of what samurai armor, like the process for making it uh, and what it was made out of? Because I know that there, there's there's a lot of misconceptions about that out there as well. Right. Good uh, question. What, yeah. But this, this is, consider this the, was samurai armor made of bamboo question? No. <laughs> no. No, it was not. And now... Samurai armor itself, the body armor, was not made out of bamboo. Right. Um, certain pieces maybe had uh, sections of bamboo incorporated into them um, to make moldings, or which they were often covered with leather and then fastened to iron or leather plates with rivets. Um, but as a main component for the protective coverings, bamboo was never utilized. Right. Um, Strips of bamboo were used in making other things like jingasa and, you know, conical helmets and stuff like that. But, uh, no, uh, very rarely and with maybe... Now, the one thing with Japanese armor that I, I, I've learned over the years is there you can never say never. There Certainly. will always be the exception. Certainly. But as, but as a standard, bamboo was not used. Um, it, it was... Go ahead, sorry. Oh, yeah, no, it just... It's always seemed to me, and of course I have no factual basis for this, but you, you, you might have uh, come across something that might help explain it. But whenever I see that question from somebody on the board or, or I get asked that question, it always makes me think that maybe that there was, uh, uh, kind of like you mentioned before, there was like one that one random suit of armor that somebody as a in the Edo period as a uh, just as a random thing, you know, as a piece of art or whatever, made it out of uh, lacquered bamboo as a display piece or something. And then somebody, some European bought that and brought it back to Europe. And, and somehow this myth of Japanese armor was made of bamboo started from that. I've always, I've always wondered if that something like that was the case. Well, you know, probably old kendo equipment is the biggest contributor to that sort of myth. Ah, that's a good point. A lot of it was bamboo. Yeah. So, but for actual armor, I, I think the samurai were, you know, especially the higher ranking fellows, they were very concerned about their image and they were also concerned about saving their lives. Right. And um, bamboo was bamboo just wasn't going to do it. <laughs> yeah, wasn't going to do it. And um, the early armors were primarily made of um, rawhide and those, they would make scales and laminate and they would lacquer them right. and bind them into um, strips and make the armor plead. That was successful as um, to repel arrows and spearheads, etc., mm -hmm. initially. But once you come into an age where firearms are introduced, um, it, it can obviously no longer uh, defend and defeat that sort of uh, weaponry. Sure. And sure. Yeah. so over time, there's a trend to go away from the scale armors assembled from scales, which are have a lot of resilience towards solid plate. And so, and those plates were made from, and there's a lot of debate over this, but you have to consider it that it's primarily iron. Now, iron and steel are fundamentally very similar things. It's just a matter of the quality or 
quantity of carbon right. in the mix that makes one iron and one steel. And the Japanese had that technology. Um, they could obviously uh, make one or the other, but steel is much harder to produce, and it was very obviously, for that fact, costly and time-consuming. So it was used in limited quantities. And by the time you get to the mid-1500s, when with the prevalence of firearms, they were introducing steel into their armor, um, particularly in the key areas such as the chest plate, the mm -hmm. helmet bowl. But steel is also quite a bit more heavy than iron. Right. And so it had to be used conservatively. Um, you didn't produce an entire armor out of steel because it just wasn't functional. And um, a lot of Japanese armors... Uh, particularly, again, during the height of the Sengoku period, they were a really brilliant combination of maybe all three, steel, iron, and rawhide. So they would balance out the areas that needed protection the most with and counter them with, well, this area is not as exposed. Even if you were injured here, it's perhaps not as life-threatening, so we can downgrade the level or the type of material that's used here and the quantity of it to make the warrior, to increase their uh, dexterity, you know, make the make the armor less of a burden on the warrior themselves. So um, there was a lot of thought in, in how they created these sets. I don't know if that actually answered your question or not. No, it certainly it certainly does. And um, I, I mean, it's it's interesting to relate. I mean, of course, you mentioned that you're, uh, you know, former military, and then myself being uh, in the military and uh, wearing. Um, I mean, you know, we wear body armor today when uh, deployed to different places like uh, Afghanistan and, and so forth. And, and so there's a, a very similar process that goes through the evolution in uh, in our own body armor uh, in the military today, where when I you know first started in the military, we wore stuff that was heavier and not as form fitting and not as easy to move around. And then, you know, what I wore in Afghanistan uh, a little less than two years ago, rather, was was very different from what I had originally started with because, you know, they've made upgrades and improvements and uh, figured out how to, to rearrange plates and so forth to make it easier to move and, and more protective for the kind of combat that, uh, that, that we might encounter over there. So it's actually, it's, a, it's, a, it's interesting to relate it to that, see a very similar process at work where as materials and, and, and time and, and uh, the, the threat level are all factored in, uh, you can see different pieces being, you know, and the evolution of that that happening. So that's very interesting. I mean, maybe my maybe our listeners don't find it as no, interesting I, as I, I do. I, but. <laughs> I think it's kind of interesting though to look at um, Japanese history and to see how armor evolved from something that was fundamentally quite impractical for any other purpose other than the mounted archery role of the right. early Oiroi to these really functional highly mobile, flexible suits of armor that they had at the height of the Sengoku period. And and then again, to have the whole thing, all of these evolutionary um, developments reverse themselves and go full circle back to basically people wearing Oyoroi-style armors by the end of the Edo period, which was the byproduct of the fact that the samurai for two and a half centuries had very little to do, and they yeah. became very nostalgic, and they looked back on their forefathers as, well, those were the guys. Those were the days. Look at the glory of it. And they tried to relive that by basically dressing like it. So it, they were so detached from that practical combat experience by the end of the Edo period 
that the armor that they were producing was, for the most part, absolutely useless. It looked fantastic, you know, beautiful. It, some of it was the best, mo you know, for aesthetically, it was some of the best armor ever produced. But as a item of protection, for most of it was, well, fundamentally useless again. Now, kind of on that note, I, I think I'd like to... to switch gears slightly and, and talk a little bit about uh, um, the process of collection and uh, if you so if you could if you could tell me a little bit about uh, how you go about finding different pieces uh, and where I mean obviously uh, we'll uh, give the information about uh, where our listeners can find pieces uh, uh, through your business but uh, just just kind of a little insight into the whole process of, of how you uh, find different pieces of armor and and then how you establish, you know, when they might be from and, and how, you know, you, you figure out uh, information about the different pieces. And then just kind of if if somebody out there listening has an interest in this and wants to begin collecting just some basic points that you would uh, advise them of to get them started on their way. Well, to begin with, don't show up on eBay. Uh, um, the truth of the matter is it, there's several questions there um, many foreigners tend to assume that they can go to Japan and there's just going to be armor all over the place and if they could just get to Japan they could forego all us horrible middlemen and have it for pennies on the dollar right. well you, you yourself having lived in Japan you'll know Finding a set of samurai armor anywhere in Japan is actually a really hard thing to do. It just it very rarely see it. It is. I, in uh, living there for a total of uh, eight years, uh, and then this last time being there for, for seven uh, straight. I mean, I, I went on occasion to different, uh, uh, you know, temple. Uh, I guess the the right word to, to call it in English is like a, almost like a flea market, where you know every right. month or so they have different people come in and sell various items. Many of them are antiques. And occasionally you might see one piece or a helmet or so very, like never ever did I see a com full complete set of armor. And everything I, even every piece I did see was a varying quality of varying, uh, yeah, yeah, various condition. So yeah, it was it was you know you, you'd see different things of varying quality or varying uh, condition, uh, but it, it wasn't like you were going to be able to just walk around the flea market and see uh, you know pick up uh, a complete set of armor and and be on your way. No, so it's it's it, and it's kind of interesting to think that you know for considering how long armor was used in Japanese history, and that the samurai you know if you go between the various time periods made up between five and ten percent of the entire population for well over a millennium where did it all go well a lot of it was destroyed of course um, intentionally unintentionally because you have to remember these items are um, they're made from organic material so if they're not maintained they deteriorate naturally right and I've seen that I uh, remember going to buy one set off a man or attempting to and he had it stored in a, a Kura a little warehouse in the back of his farm and we debated about the price, and we never settled, and I'd go back every year. And one year, he'd stored it differently, and he forgot to put it up on a shelf, put it down low, and moisture got into it. And when I went back and he pulled it out of the box, it literally fell to pieces. Mm. 
because all the silk and lacing will just rot away. And um, anyway, so it will break down. And I've seen a huge number of what were once phenomenal sets of armor that have just rotted away through neglect. And to the point where most of them are so far gone, it's not financially viable to try to even restore them. They're just, they're done. They're finished. They're never coming back. Unless it was connected to some huge historical figure where it was worth, you know, spending these huge sums of money on it. But so the items are out there. Finding them, that's the hard part. I used to travel all around Japan, drove all around the country, um, go on trips. And uh, a lot of it was word of mouth. Someone would say, well, go here or go there and this person. And um, I eventually set up quite a network, got to know a lot of people and um and I also gave fair prices, which is a bit of a difference that, um, cause Japanese antique dealers, you may be aware, it's not always the most scrupulous people. And, uh, I would pay more so people would hunt me out to offer pieces to me because I would give fair prices. So pretty right. soon people were contacting me. A lot of stuff's hidden away. Getting to it's the secret. Um, and that's, of course, a lot of its personal relationships. Your ability to understand the language, know the country, get to these, um, you know, rural areas in some cases, whatever it may be. But the items are out there. As for a collector, where do you begin? I actually would tell most collectors, start with a good replica. And um, now when I say a good replica, I would say anything that was made up until about 10 years ago. And um, I'm probably going to say something completely politically incorrect here, but most of the stuff coming out of China is, it's uh, maybe it looks good sitting in a corner, but it's not, a wise investment and you're not really going to learn about Japanese armor by buying these sort of sets. Okay. Whereas a lot of the older now again, 10 years back or more, even 20, 30 years ago, um, pieces of uh, reproduction armor that were being produced. Some of them were, you know, reasonably accurate reproductions and they're a great place to start because they're financially viable. You, most people can afford one. They still look good. If at the end of the day you want to sell it, you'll probably be able to get your money back on it. But they're a great way to get a hands-on experience. Um, I've often told people who buy through me, don't – so many collectors, you know, they try to pinch pennies. And they're like, well, I can get this for that much off this place. And, and, and what you end up getting is um, several pieces that none of them are really good. None of them are really probably worth what you invested. And at the end of the day, you're never going to get much satisfaction out of them as your knowledge level increases. Right. You're much better to bide your time – Learn the subject matter, and that's a big part of this. Learn the pieces, and then buy one good thing rather than because several cheap pieces ultimately, if you add up the value of those purchases, will probably equate to one better piece, which will give you satisfaction and last for a long time. And it's got the actual monetary value to it that you could get a resale value of it. So start small. Build up, but build your knowledge level, and that's a big thing. Is most people they just dive in, they think they're gonna get this, and they, it looks amazing, and they spend money on it, only to discover later on it's either a reproduction or it's not what they thought it was, or it's a composite set. And these are all things that kind of gut a lot of collectors, and it turns a lot of people off because I, I'll have to admit this is not the most um, honest industry, mm-hmm. and um, you know. And very few people, again, as we already discussed, have access to enough information to really be able to vet these items for themselves. So they're heavily reliant on the person they're buying from to be honest with them. Okay. And um, and so people will assume, oh, well, 
this guy, he knows what he's talking about, or it comes with this document, therefore it must be right. And sadly, that's very seldom the case. And right. that includes armor society documents. Quite often, they'll document something. It might mean, yeah, this is a real Edo period set of armor, but these pieces don't match, and they won't tell you that. Right. So, and that's not dishonesty. That's just, that's a separate subject matter. So, again, the big thing is to learn your material before you invest in it. Okay. So, um, you've mentioned a couple times the difference between a, uh, a full set and a composite set. Um, so just to, to two quick questions on that. One, um, I would imagine that that significantly affects the value of, of the piece if it's, if it's a full, complete set of pieces that go together versus composites, you know, that have been kind of put together by a, uh, either a dealer or a collector. Correct? Exactly. Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you think about, and, and the, one of the really tragic things about the armor business in Japan and the way the sort of antique business works there is um, when armors come up for auction a lot, they're often sold, they're parted out because this forces people bidding on them to fight for each separate piece. Ah, I see. Not every piece is, is worth as much as the others. So, because a lot of collectors are only attracted to helmets or only the face masks. Mm -hmm. And so they'll bid high to get those, and they don't care about the rest, really. And so you get a lot of these pieces that then they're merged with other sets to make what looks like a full set and sold off. But once these things have been parted out, the chance of ever bringing them back together is, is almost nil. And that's a huge tragedy, and I've seen this so many times. You think this set's been together for 300 years, 200 years, whatever it may be, to see it come up at a market, and because it's convenient, uh, it's a easier money, someone will break them up and sell them that way. And so real gusoku, as I call them, and I've had some serious debates with some people about this, but to me, a gusoku is a set that it was, well, perhaps not the right term, but it was born together. It was right. fabricated to be, they, all these pieces were intended to be together, they were merged into one entity, and they represented one armor at one point in time. That's a gusoku to me. Okay. When it becomes a, a composite, and at some points, you know, you have to have a certain degree of discretion. Okay, one piece, the shin guards went missing. You can maybe blend another pair of similar-looking shin guards in to complete the look. Most of the armor's there. Fine. But a lot of the stuff you see for sale on the market is fundamentally each, well, maybe 80% of the pieces don't match. And, but very few people know how to tell, well, how, do, do these go together? They, they look all the same color. They must belong together. Right. No, that's not the case. And, um, and so they'll invest thinking, well, I've bought this brilliant 18th century set of armor, only to discover later that the pieces vary from, you know, most of them are late Edo period. Some are even modern reproduction pieces put in there. Some have been altered. And, and as your knowledge level grows, you finally discover that what was once a great purchase now turns out to be a pretty bogus deal. Right, right. Now, I don't want you to give away any uh, any trade secrets or anything like that, but uh, just uh, at, at the basic level, what are the kind of things that you might want to look for to tell uh, that that would tell you that something is a composite rather than a, a, a full gusoku, as you phrase it? And, uh, I'll be totally frank here. In, in my books, I'm totally happy to give away the trade secrets because I'm a collector too. I always was. My heart's still there. 
So I've always had a lot of empathy for collectors. Okay. And I uh, learned the hard way. I got burned so many times. I can, probably can't count at this point. <laughs> but um, they're hard lessons, but good lessons. And I don't think it needs to be that way. And again, it was something I meant to touch on earlier and that a lot of collectors in this field get burned and they get put off and it scares them away from collecting these pieces. And, and that's something I would like to see change because it's a brilliant, brilliant subject matter. It's really interesting. These are great pieces of history. They need to be preserved. They should be appreciated. And actually they're very undervalued compared to European armor, for example. So to promote people's interest, to keep them in the market, and to keep them from being burned, I'm more than happy to share trade secrets. And I have so, I've done so in the books I've published to date. Um, what to look for most of all, all armors will have, there will be a consistency through them. And one of the most obvious ones is um, with the, the, the Songu articles, which means the Kote, the sleeves, the haidate, the thigh guard, and the shin guards. Right. They will have cloth material backing them. Anybody can do this. If you look at those three key pieces and the color or the pattern of those materials differs, well, then you know right away, well, these three pieces don't go together because when they would be originally been uh, fabricated, they would have used the same material between all three pieces. I see. So that's a really easy lesson. Another one is the lacing. Is it the same color from top to bottom through all the pieces? And quite often uh, on the exterior, on the forward faces, forward facing edges of a helmet bowl, uh, the shikoro, I should say, the neck guard, or other pieces of the armor, the outer lacing will be a, a decorative style of lacing. It'll be a bolder color, a white, or a, maybe an, a, an, a red with different flecks in it. And those outer lacings, this called mimito, if you see that the helmet bowl, for example, has white mimito on the outside edges and along the bottom edge of the uh, the neck guard, and then suddenly the shoulder guards, though, have a completely different color mimito, there's a very good chance, again, that those parts were never meant to be together. Uh, possibly they, the lacing's been changed, but that's something you have to look for. So you want to find these consistencies. Um, if the helmet bowl, for example, the neck guard, is just a flat lamb, uh, mm -hmm. smooth, flat lamb. But then the neck guard on the um, on the mempo, which would cover the throat area, is made of a series of scales. Well, that's inconsistent. Why does one use flat lamellar pieces of um, metal plating while another one uses scales? They should both be the same. So when you find these sort of, you know, varied combinations of styles, colors, um, materials being used from top to bottom, then you know something's not right, and you really got to look at it in detail. Okay. Now, my my final question about uh, the gusoku versus the composite, um, which, by the way, and, and we'll get to your books uh, eventually, but I, I thought you did a very good, very good explanation of that as as well uh, in the uh, uh, in in the, the the book introduction that I uh, was able to read. And it is an important point, but when, um, for instance, if I'm if I'm uh, looking at a, a suit of armor, um, for me, of course, my interest is in uh, how, you know, the samurai uh, actually moved, fought, employed their armor. Uh, so what what I guess 
long-winded way of getting around to my question is, in in the period, like so, for instance, uh, if we're looking at the Sengoku period, uh, you know, mid 1500s, uh, did samurai typically was their armor typically match sets like this, or or, or do we see them using uh, maybe I'll use this, uh, you know, dough, but I'll match it with with different uh, uh, pieces uh, for you know the kote or the uh, the, the sode or, or or whatever. Or did they typically use matched sets of armor? I I'm I'm sure there are people who will debate this, but the concept of we're picking pieces up off the battlefield and uh, oh I'm going to merge this with that or I I don't believe that's really the case and. Um, right. There were pieces, sure, pieces were scavenged, for example, or there were shops that sold uh, pieces, then you could then merge it with your own armor. But a lot of these men took huge pride in their physical appearance. And to come on the battlefield with this, you know, sort of bizarre amalgamation of various unrelated pieces wouldn't be very becoming. Okay. And if you were having, for example, some new sleeves fitted to you, you would probably have the parts, you know, refurbished, to match with your armor and, and and one thing about armor too is it was constantly in need of maintenance again because of the materials it was made from so if you used it on a short campaign when you came back pretty much all the lacing was going to have to be replaced a lot of the lacquer was going to have to be touched up the cloth would have been heavily damaged and frayed so these items even in a time period when they weren't fighting they deteriorated just sitting there so at least every generation they were being refurbished and often heavily refurbished um, because a lot of armor uh, metamorphosed to keep up with the styles of the changing times. Mm -hmm. So they would add new features that hadn't been there originally. They would remount pieces that with a, you know, we like this style now, so we're adding that. So I, when you're talking the time period where these, the lower ranking guys, they are more likely to be wearing sort of a ragtag combination of miscellaneous parts. Right. Um, that wasn't so much because, again, they're scavenging the battlefield as it is they're just being given what is there. Right. And and those pieces were very rudimentary, often really poor construction, and sure, a large percent of it probably was. Whatever was salvaged from somewhere else was just refinished in your markings or your colors and given to you. So. Right. So we're talking the Ashigaro, the low-grade sort of, you know, foot foot soldiers. But any samurai, and when we talk samurai, I mean, the Ashigaru as such are samurai. But the samurai are actually more of an elite in that class, right, of right. the warrior class. They're, there's a position there, and like the officer class in any army, there's a sort of a standard for uniforms. There's a standard for appearance and de deportment. And I don't think very many of them would have been coming on the field wearing an amalgamation of sort of crappy pieces they picked up here and there. Sure. Um, but it was costly to field an armor. And they say um, often that a samurai invested more money into the production or the fabrication of his armor than he did in the, uh, the building of his own home. Right. So it was, it was a big investment. And as you get into the Edo period when they're not using armor – a lot of samurai couldn't afford it, and so they sold their armor or had to borrow, and a lot of them were also lent armor from their lords because they couldn't actually afford to keep it. So, um, but I, I don't, I personally don't agree with the sort of ragtag combination theory. But um, how we prove either way, I don't know at this point.
Sure. I mean, it, anything like that would be difficult to, to go back and, and say with any definitive. Um, I, I would imagine just my own thought that it, it would depend very heavily on, a, on an individual warrior's, you know, socioeconomic status, kind of like you said, where if you're in the higher echelons, you know, you, you have uh, a certain image that you have to project. So even if you couldn't personally buy the most expensive full set of armor, you uh, you would buy uh, maybe a lesser expensive, but still a full set of armor, so that it it you you didn't look like a ragtag misfit. Uh, yeah, or whereas, you would blend those pieces together. Right. You would go get some new sleeves, but you would have the cloth changed out and match it in. I mean, you right. you wouldn't walk around wearing three different colors of parts because you would look like a bozo to most people. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Okay. Um, so you have to remember the Japanese were have, were always concerned about aesthetic appearance sure. through their whole history, and they still are today. And I think again that would have definitely had some bearing in its time. I mean, even the Ashigaru, the equipment they were issued was relatively consistent, right. poor quality, but it, there was a standard. Right, and we see um, frequently the uh, you know either the the family crest or whatever applied to the the front of it to kind of give some sort of uh, uniform appearance, exactly. you know, even to the Ashigato so that you, you could recognize who they belong to and, and sort exactly. of, I, I think, I, I think yeah, that's a very valid point. All right. And that's the end of part one of our interview with Trevor Absalon. So stay tuned for next time and we will have part two ready for you. And in the meantime, if you have any questions, please send them to samuraipodcast at gmail.com or send them to us on Twitter at Samurai Archives, or we have the Facebook page, the forum, etc., etc. And also, if you're in the mood, please go to our Samurai Archives bookstore, which the links are available to help cover the cost of this podcast. Also, if you do need to make any purchases through Amazon.com, please use our link, which is provided on the podcast page. That's SamuraiPodcast.com. And it doesn't cost you anything, and it gets us just a little bit to help pay for the costs of the podcast. And so, see you next time.